first immediately or you will be subject to arrest a boss ain't nothing but a thief on a time loan 128 before you play nintendo on some shooters so put the bridge down on feed us to the killer bees we get what we deserve like bury me with my mp3s write my manifesto in 72 cpi life's just a game you got cheated never learned i write these songs every bridge that ain't been burned for every cop car that ain't Welcome to This Is America, November 1st, 2023. On this episode, we speak with Sam about the recent Block Cop City speaking tour that happened across the United States and the upcoming mass actions in Atlanta, Georgia against the Cop City Project from November 10th through the 13th. We then speak with the host of the Final Straw podcast about the recent Asheville Anarchist Book Fair and about organizing autonomous events in the current terrain with COVID-19 still a looming threat. We discuss how to make gatherings accessible and engaging to as many people as possible and much more. Finally, millions of people across the world are taking to the streets in solidarity with Palestine. If you missed our recent podcast interview with IGD contributor Scott Campbell on the history of the settler colonial project of the state of Israel, the role of the U.S. in propping up apartheid, and what's happening on the ground right now, check it out linked in our show notes. If you're looking for printable outreach materials to hand out at upcoming events, protests, and demonstrations, again, check out our show notes for links. And now for some upcoming events. On November 5th is the Sacramento Anarchist Book Fair and Rock Against Racism Benefit Show. On November 11th is the Bay Area Anarchist Study Group Conference in Oakland, California. On the same day, November 11th, is a Food Not Bombs Benefit Show in Bremerton, Washington. On November 11th through the 12th is the Boston Anarchist Book Fair. On November 18th is an Anarchist Skillshare happening in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. On the same day, November 18th, is a Pushing Down the Walls benefit event in Roland Heights, California. And finally, mark your calendars on December 2nd for an Anarchist Book Fair in Lawrence, Kansas. And finally, if you value what's going down as a revolutionary autonomous media resource in times of crisis, you can help us. Write about what's going on in your area and contribute it to this website. Subscribe to our podcast and follow our RSS feed. Listen to us on the radio. Follow us on social media platforms like Macedon and Blue Sky. Tell a friend about IGD. And if you like this show, check out other amazing content on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. That's going to do it for us today. As always, enjoy the interviews and the discussion, and we will see you soon. Hi, yeah, my name's Sam. I use he and they pronouns, and I'm calling uh, from the Midwest. I'm an Atlanta forest defender and have been working on this campaign for about two and a half years, a um, little over two years, maybe. And, you know, we've seen it ebb and flow a lot. I'm excited to talk about that today. I'm also um, an organizer on the Block Cop City Coalition, the group sort of planning the Block Cop City mass action on November 13th in Atlanta and just got home from a pretty expansive tour giving uh, presentations around the country, uh, meeting a lot of really wonderful people along the way. Awesome, and we're excited to talk about that tour. Uh, but first, let's just pick your brain a little bit here. Where is the campaign at? Sure, yeah. So, you know, the campaign has changed a lot in the last 
two years. Um, and this year has been maybe its most turbulent year. Um, you know, the, the beginning of the year was marked by the murder of our comrade Tortsukita and um, also an unprecedented wave of support for Tort's family, Tort's friends, Tort's ideas, Tort's life, uh, as well as the movement, uh, the larger movement ecosystem itself, right? Um, with that tragedy came international outrage. And that sort of continued over the scope of the year. And But the movement sort of now finds itself at a bit of an impasse where, the, you know, there hasn't been an embodied protest encampment uh, in the Wilani forest since, re really since they killed Tort, uh, except for a couple days here and there in March. Um, but then there was the March 5th raid on the, the music festival and the subsequent um, ever-increasing repression as a result of that. And sort of we're in this situation where more people than ever know about the campaign to stop copy, defend the Atlanta forest, and more people than ever support it and care about it, right? And that's evidenced by the, the sort of record-shattering 116,000 petition signatures uh, that uh, Atlanta voters signed in order to try to be able to decide if, if the project can move forward or not, um, you know, which is the first time in the like 186 municipal year history of, uh, of, of, of Atlanta that a referendum has ever been successful. Um, so it's like no, um, it's no exaggeration to say that by that metric, it's the least popular project uh, in, in the city's storied history. Just one statistic to throw out there is that, that I find fascinating is that more people put their name down to have it on the ballot than voted for the mayor, which is just hilarious. <laughs> And that's why, and that's why, um, I don't know. We can we can sit here and ponder all, all for a while about why why Andre Dickens has put all of his chips into this thing. Um, but I don't really want to do that just yet. But um, so yeah, you know, more people than ever support this movement around the world, right? Hundreds of thousands of people support this movement at least, and uh, but less people than ever are actually in the forest resisting the construction of the facility and resisting the ongoing deforestation efforts. Um, and, you know, we sort of regrouped and sort of said, well, well, well why is that? You know, and, and obviously the answer is very complicated, very multifaceted. Um, a lot of it has to do with repression. A lot of it has to do with just fear, you know, that there's been a there's been an enemy occupation by the police inside of the forest for months and months and months. Um, but also just like, embodied action in the forest in a collective fashion just hasn't felt possible for right for a long time so we've sort of been trying to think through well like what would it look like to create a powerful collective action in which we reveal to ourselves our our, our people power essentially right and prove to ourselves that embodied action is indeed possible in the forest while also carving out a space where where new horizons can reveal themselves because the horizons of the movement sort of feel stifled they, they feel a little obscured by clouds and you know we aim to clear that away and sort of reassert our capacity to act together in this moment how has sort of the democratic establishment in atlanta continued to respond to the movement Back in spring, there was the um, the sort of bombastic city hall protest 
that happened where the you know Atlanta City Council was going to vote to once again raise the the this, the, the funding limit for the project and there was a, another record shattering turnout where there was 16 hours of continuous public comment right and um you know that's sort of left a situation where and I really love, you know, it's just so funny to picture, right? The city council members had to sit there and listen to the comment all day, all night, and then until 6 a.m. the following morning. Uh, and they still voted 11 to 4 to raise the funding ceiling for the project, right? So then sort of the very next day, activists were like, okay, well, we are going to use um, a very powerful democratic tool that we have at our disposal here in Atlanta, and that is uh using a referendum initiative to get something on that ballot right so you gather a certain amount of petition signatures in order to get a sort of verbal item on the ballot they were actually getting the signatures to vote on the, the the lease of the land itself right um the atlanta police foundation is leasing the land and uh they're going to vote on the legitimacy of that lease right so then immediately mayor andre dickens uh sort of responds and says oh no 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 you, 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 you simply can't do that. You see, the, 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 the contract for that lease has actually, has already been signed. So actually, you know, trying to, trying to undermine that signed contract through a popular vote, uh, would be against, uh, would, would be against contract law and technically speaking would be unconstitutional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. It would be unconstitutional for you to vote on this. And he just sort of immediately came out on this like bizarre political line, right? That just nobody believes. Uh, and it's been that same sort of level of pushback from the these Democrats um, throughout the entire electoral arc uh, of the last six months or so. So finally, right, um, there there were a few other things, a few other lawsuits and 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 little snafus and, and, and tricks up the sleeve about the city. But then on the morning of Monday, September 11th, right, uh, activists turned in their boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of signed petitions. And the, of course, the city clerk at the direction of the Dickens administration says, we're not even going to count those. We're not even going to count those petition signatures. And, you know, in fact, we're going to blame it on you because you were trying to um, and this goes back to this, this lawsuit where, right, the, the activists uh, were, you know, I don't know if, if any of all you listening have ever tried to get, get, get someone to sign a petition before. But uh, sometimes it's a it's more complicated than, than you might think. Uh, might hope sometimes but uh you know they were recruiting folks from DeKalb county and the area around the bilani forest the south river forest to come and, and gather these petition signatures from atlanta residents and the city caught wind that they were you know they had a pretty big volunteer base and some of them might not live in atlanta so they tried to challenge that and said that it's 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 against the first amendment for for you to be using uh uh out of state person to um, or out-of-town person to uh, to sign petition signatures, which, of course, is, is not the case. And they immediately challenged that. The, the petitioners immediately challenged that. And... Um, so, and, and I'm not um, I'm not currently involved in the referendum operations. I'm not, you know, um, a lawyer. But, you know, all this stuff, right, has just been the most bad-faith legal runarounds, right, just to stall this thing out. Um, and, and, you know, I think it was just announced today... 
um, I didn't read the article, but I just got off a meeting where um, it seems that the hearing for the referendum, um, the next steps will be that that date was announced in December. Um, and uh, I don't want to speak. I can't speak with any certainty on what the implications of that is, but, you know, um, would encourage the listener to sort of just check back and see what the, the, the newest updates are, because there's some movement happening in that terrain right now. Just in terms of the referendum, I think the main question is for those that especially aren't familiar with the minutia per se of, you know, petitions and everything else, like, will the city government be successful in stopping this? Because, I mean, obviously they don't want it to go forward. Right, right. That's sort of what's on the horizon with this newest um, uh, uh, hearing or some sort of uh, some sort of legal hearing in, in regards to um, the challenges against the referendum is facing right now. In order to get on the March 2024 ballot, which would be the um, uh, Republican presidential primary, right? So um, th- uh, th- there needs to be like 50 days to count the, and, and verify the signatures, and there needs to be a couple sort of um, legal benchmarks that have been reached, bureaucratic benchmarks that have been reached in order for the referendum uh, to advance formally and be on the March 2024 ballot. Um, but with this sort of like delay tactic where it, instead of getting a sort of expedient hearing, right, where like originally activists were trying to get this on the, 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 the November 2023, <laughs> uh, ballot. And, you know, at the Black Cop City Coalition, we were working with that horizon in mind when, you know, we sort of, uh, we're, we're trying to figure out when we're going to do this thing. And they've just, the city and the, um, the state have just pushed it back and pushed it back and pushed it back. And it seems like they're trying to push it back to where the deadline won't even function properly for the March ballot, in which case the next time that it could be on. And, and this is sort of conjecture, right? This is just what people are sort of feeling right now, um, where the cities just keeps doing everything they can to make sure that the people don't get an opportunity to vote on this because there's been polling. That's that's been occurring over the last few weeks. And the polling is clear that across the political spectrum of registered voters in Atlanta, there is a widespread condemnation of this project. And if it was to go on even something as sort of uh, one might assume as unfriendly of a political terrain as the as the March presidential conservative primary. Right. um, There's still all signs point to this not uh, to, to to the referendum succeeding in shutting down the project. And there's even been discussion down there in Atlanta um, about next, uh, you know, next um, uh, legislative session to try to actually get rid of the referendum as a legal tool, an object for the democratic process altogether, because they don't want the people to actually have a chance in deciding what happens. Right. So now they're even going so far as to, to maybe attempt to delay this thing past the March presidential, uh, the, the March election. And then there's discussion about trying to actually uh, destroy re- the referendum as a democratic tool for the city of Atlanta. Just just completely negate it and say, actually, you can't you can't do this at all. Right. So they're doing they're, they're trying to change the laws in order to, to 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 push this project through. And it's really just like it's it's just it's just galloping corruption. Right. It's just like staggering this sort of just like bad faith lies and 
you know, twisted, twisting the language of the democratic process and twisting the language of the constitution. And I'm not sitting here like, you know, saying that those are sacred or something like that, but it's just, it's just nasty, you know? So let's talk about the big action that's coming up uh, in early November. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. So sort of with all of this is the political backdrop, right? This, this, um, this historic level of repression that's coming down in Atlanta, right? The 61 RICO defendants, 41 domestic terrorism defendants, sort of putting anarchism as such, uh, indicting this in a sort of contemporary red scare against the black flag or something, right? And we have all of this as the backdrop, this like bad faith legal runaround against the, against the, um, the democratic process and, you know, a police occupation of the construction site where they're just trying to ram this thing through, organizers in Atlanta and sort of friends of the forest from around the country sort of come together to say, well, what is needed in this moment? And what is needed in the face of incredibly austere and trumped up repression? Um, but what is needed in this moment is the largest mass action, the largest collective action that has ever occurred at the construction site. What's needed in this moment is a collective scaling up of our capacity to mobilize against this project and against ecocide and a capacity to scale up our solidarity with all of those being um, charged with austere legal charges. And um, so we're, we've put together this um, this mass nonviolent direct action convergence that will be happening from November 10th to November 13th in Atlanta. So folks from around Atlanta, from around the state of Georgia and from around the country will be forming affinity groups and coming to Atlanta in order to shut down construction operations at the construction site on the morning of Monday, November 13th. And we're organizing this entirely above ground. We're organizing it with an expansive continental wide speaking tour. And we're doing so in order to open up new horizons in the movement and increase our capacity to mobilize in the 21st century. Well, tell us about the tour that happened because we understand that there was a massive project of like going out, doing outreach, talking to people, getting folks, folks excited about this mobilization. Uh, tell us about the tour. How many cities have you all visited? If you know that number, my understanding is it's still going on, right? Yes, the tour is ongoing. Um, there are stops in Atlanta this weekend. There were just some stops at a Muskogee reservation in Oklahoma. There's some in North Carolina um, coming up. Um, there's some upcoming ones in Los Angeles as well. Um, so I don't know the exact number of the number of tour stops, but we've organized over 70. And um, there, I mean, there was a there was a huge demand. There were dozens of tour stops that we just were unable to fill. You know, once the, um, you know, we launched this campaign on September 12th, the day after um, the folks submitted their referendum petition signatures. And, um, you know, we had dozens and dozens of spots already locked in and a bunch that were sort of coming into fruition, sort of from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon, Vancouver to Tijuana and everywhere in between. Um, and when folks from around the country saw that, right, this is sort of the most in uh, the most resonant environmental justice campaign that this country has seen since Standing Rock. And uh, folks from around the country saw this app that you can find, you know, blockcopcity.org slash tour and um, wanted to jump in. Right. So they, they, they contacted us in droves asking if the tour could 
stop um, in their hometown too. We were able to fulfill some of those, but I mean, this has been an incredibly heavy and high logistical uh, lift <laughs> to say the least um, to get a 70 or 80 city speaking tour organized in a matter of weeks uh, around the country. Um, so, you know, spots that I hit were uh, mainly in the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest, um, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Oregon, Washington, um, and uh, British Columbia, as well as uh, a digital tour stop. And, you know, we sort of had different um, for Atlanta forest defenders, either from Atlanta or uh, in a distributed fashion from around the country, sort of step up to sort of say, oh, I'm over in the, the southwest. Um, I'd be happy to do some of these tour stops um, over here in some of these cities down there. Um, so folks sort of have really been able to support this movement in a really important remote fashion from afar um, through this tour work. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen, you know, I think so I think I did 15 tour stops or something. Um, is just uh, every one of these at these stops, by and large, have just been incredibly stoked and grateful and affirmative of this um, big organizing arc, this big push that we're doing to to shut down construction operations through mass action in November. Um, I think folks who a lot of people have been very, very closely following this campaign. Uh, for for years now, and, and and people have been thirsty for on the ground updates. People have been thirsty to know sort of well what's next in this campaign, you know. Um, so we were really able to 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 satisfy a lot of people who had been looking for um, the most up to date report backs, the most up to date sense of what things look like and feel like on the ground in Atlanta, and what's next for this for this movement, and. Um, you know, there's been a lot of really robust conversations with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, I mean, hell, thousands of people around the country. Um, and there's been, you know, um, brilliant ideas that people have offered through at the Q&A. There's been um, ways that people have been wanting to help and plug in, and we've been able to fold them into the organizing of this and, and link them up with other people who they probably want to be linked up with. And it's, and it's been a really lovely sort of... Um, way to i mean nothing beats face-to-face -face conversations right um and that's evidenced by the fact that there were just dozens and dozens of tour requests that we were just completely unable to satisfy so it's 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 it's, it's it was a lot you know uh it was it's it's been it's been pretty exhausting but all the tour presenters have just really stepped up they've done an exceptional job everyone sort of has their own their own energy, their own flavor, their own language, their own politics that they bring into their presentations. And it's really been quite a delight to just hear all of these brilliant people talk about what this presentation's meant to them and um, just continue to strengthen the argument for this convergence. You know, one of the things I heard from someone else on the ground was saying that a lot of folks coming out to these events are like new, new folks that are new to social movements. Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, you know, so, so sort of when we were first planning this thing, we had sort of asked, who's our target audience? Uh, one, with these tour stops, and two, just with with this specific action in general. Because um, this doesn't speak to everybody. Not everyone's going to be able to come 
to Atlanta in November. Not everybody wants to participate in an, in an action that has a risk of arrest or not everyone, you know, pe people have different ways that they want to engage. And that's been one of the beautiful parts of, of this movement. Um, and sort of our response to that is like, who do we want to come is everybody who has been moved in some way by the movement to defend the Atlanta forest and stop cop city. So whether that be your light green environmentalists, you know, your, your DSA types, your eco anarchists, um, your, you know, civil rights advocates, um, whoever it is, right. Anyone who's been following this thing, abolitionists, um, and anyone, right. And that's really shown up in the sort of, um, and the types of folks that we've encountered. And, you know, we, 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 we hit a lot of very different places, right? Um, you know, I had the pleasure of being able to give a presentation at both Mama Akua's community house in Detroit, as well as um, a land project in rural Southern Oregon, right? And the, the folks who came to these different locations were, were real different from one another. Um, I think by and large, you know, um, I would sort of ask at the beginning of these tour stops, who here has who heard of the movement to defend the Atlanta forest or stop cop city in most of the spots, everyone had raised their hand, you know? Um, and it, you know, there really was just such a, it, it, there'd be no way to just sort of simplify who was coming to these things. It was everything from 18, 19 year old college students who were just getting into direct action and, you know, social justice histories and politics for the first time to people who have been, um, you know, in decades past were involved in whether the, it be the WTO organization or even like the anti-Vietnam movement and have since moved on to different um, ways of moving through the world or back to the land or having kids and grandkids. Um, the the sort of political and racial and age and gender uh, composition of the tour stops was pretty expansive. And it really just brought in people from all walks of life. And I really think that's just a testament to how resonant um, the Stop Cop City campaign is. Has there been any uh, public statements from the city of Atlanta or law enforcement about the upcoming demonstrations? Have you gotten any sort of whiff of how they plan to respond? No, no. Now I'm trying to sit here and think if I if I want that or if I don't want that and how it would make me feel. But uh, no, I, it, it, to my knowledge, they haven't acknowledged this at all. As we speak, uh, Israel is launching a horrific bombing campaign against people living in Gaza. We might be witnessing the beginning of a, an invasion into the occupied territories very soon. I think one of the things that, that we should uh, mention is the connection between uh, the state of Israel and the Atlanta Police Department. Just as there's just so many thousands of people out on the streets in solidarity with Palestine right now. Can you comment on that? What is the connection there? Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually constantly learning new ways that those are connected. I don't know um, all of them. But, you know, back when the project was announced, it was revealed that agencies like the IDF were, were already sort of slated to come down and um, practice and, and sharpen their sort of state-of-the-art contemporary warfare and um, urban warfare tactics at the facility if it's constructed you know it was just revealed that earlier this year there were several um, high-ranking Atlanta Police Department uh, um, officials um, who, and uh, officers who were going to travel to Israel to get 
uh, geared up and to get trained in this. And the IDF does what we're seeing, right, with the, I mean, for the last several decades, the Israeli occupation of Palestine has been, that's been sort of the ground zero for cutting edge surveillance technologies, cutting edge internment uh, and uh, sort of um, occupation, uh, uh, concentration camp technologies, um, borders, impermeable borders and militarized checkpoints, facial recognition technologies, not to mention sort of ballistics and explosives and chemical weapons, right? That's been the sort of testing grounds for this new wave of hyper, I mean, I don't even know what the right word is anymore, like uber militarized, like just, like just, it, it just, they, they keep raising the bar for what they, um, what sort of like uh, unhinged violence they're capable of. And, you know, the Israeli defense forces have been testing this stuff on the Palestinians and, uh, and in Atlanta, right. What we're talking about is building the most state of the art, police training facility that the country and possibly the world has ever seen the largest training facility that the country and possibly the world has ever seen. Right. And we're, we're getting evidence that the IDF and other law enforcement agencies from around the country and around the world will be coming to Atlanta to use this facility if it's built. And, you know, all of these powers that all of these law enforcement agency powers are, are, are sharing their knowledge with one another in order to like tighten their grasp and their, uh, of the world um and we've really just seen through the um the breadth of the the you know free palestine movement over the last week or so couple in in the united states just like tens of thousands of people in major cities around the country hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets right um and uh the parallels are there and people are talking about this on the streets are talking about it in meetings. And, you know, it's like one of the ways, like sometimes we have this question of like, like when there's a place that's just so far away on the other side of the world, like how do we actually help beyond just sort of sharing um, never ending Instagram stories, which don't get me wrong are important, right? We need to know about these things, but you know, the United States of America is <laughs> the number one backer of Israel in the world, and Israel is the number one recipient of 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 of, of money and of and of military aid uh, from the United States. If we want to stand in solidarity with the people of Palestine, we have to attack the United States military apparatus and the United States law enforcement apparatus. And one of the premier nexuses of that apparatus is Cop City. You know, one other big question I wanted to ask you, I was reading an interview with uh, the Atlanta mayor and he was saying that it was fascinating. Democrats do this all the time, but he was basically saying like, you know, we've got to build cop city in order to better train police so they're more basically won't in, engage in police brutality, putting it in sort of like this kind of like woke language package and stuff like that. I'm just curious if you're seeing more of that, of them sort of uh, really selling this thing with sort of like language really aimed at liberals. Yeah, right. And like that's they, they even go as far as to rewrite the George Floyd uprising in the process. Right. They say that was a movement for increased police accountability and increased training when like everyone who, uh, you know, witnessed this um, 
and was there knows that it was a movement against the police as such, against racialized terrorism as such, against white supremacy and capitalism as such, right? It was a movement against the police. And <clears throat> like, like, let's be real. The American police have more training than they've ever had since they were founded hundreds of years ago, right? The American police have more resources spent on their training and on equipping them to do their job properly than they ever have ever. They have, we're spending more money on them than we ever have ever. And what did we see? But 2022 was the year where the police killed more people than any other year ever. And what we can sort of deduce from that, right, is actually all we're doing by giving them more money and giving them more, uh, I don't know, trading, is equipping them to do what it is that they do, and that is violence, right? They're violence workers. And, like, the more money we spend on the cops, the more money we give them, the more efficient they will be at committing that violence. And it's been that case forever, <laughs> And, and they know it, right? And it's like, um, you know, one of the advancements, like one of the, one of the advancements that the Defend the Atlanta Forest Stop Cop City movement has done has sort of been like, you know, I'm picturing that meme, that arm in arm meme, right? The environmentalist movement in one hand, the abolitionist movement in the other, just clasping arm in arm and refusing to let go of one another and sort of just knowing that the movement for the earth must be a movement against the police and that the abolitionist and the environmentalist movement are not going to come separated again. And that's just been a major advancement in the trajectory of American social movements. That's like juxtaposed to Dickens over here trying to roll back the clock saying, actually, everyone else just wants more training for the police. You know, with the conclusion of this mobilization, I'm curious, you know, what are you all looking for as sort of, I don't want to say an end goal, but how, how do you hope that you feel after this is over? Like, is there, is there a trajectory that you're hoping this pushes things towards or what would you say are some of the, the goals that you're hoping to reach with this? Um, every time I ask this question to my friends that I'm organizing with, someone says something new and brilliant and profound. And it's like, um, yeah, uh, so a few things. One is, they're actively building this thing. And, you know, they word on the street is they're going to start concrete pouring in the next few weeks. Right. So if we want to actually stop cop city, we have to drastically scale up our ability to mobilize together against it and stand in solidarity with the people who have also been doing that. Right. Um, so that's sort of one thing is to, you know, um, an adrenaline shot to the heart of the movement, uh, clear out all of this stifled air and, and breathe new energy into this movement space. You know, the movement itself, the Stop Cop City movement has been, you know, defined by um, collective risk taking and by a diversity of tactics. Right. And we sort of see this as just another feather in the movement's diversity of tactics hat, because there has never been. This will be the largest action at the construction site ever right a sort of like objective material um and, and and social and movement escalation so we don't know 
what that's going to bring. We don't know what New Horizons that will open up. We know that there needs to be uh, a staggering increase in the amount of disruption that construction um, that the construction workers see with a staggering increase in the amount of resistance against the physical construction of this project on a scope that hasn't before seen, been seen if we want this project to, to not be built. Uh, but sort of in addition to that too, right? Like we have, we have all known for decades that if we want to resist the destruction of planet Earth, that we have to drastically scale up our ability to mobilize against it, right? We have to drastically scale up our ability to work together across lines of political identity based and geographic difference. We have to drastically scale up our ability to um, to roll out together and shut down projects, ecocidal projects, white supremacist projects, whenever they attempt to get built. And to me, this is sort of an opportunity for all, everyone who's participating in this to experiment with a sort of cutting edge form of collective activation, right? We're sort of Block Cop City, like, is inspired by and is following of the tactical, strategic, and revolutionary advancements put forth by the civil rights movement, by the anti-nuclear movement, by the, the world trade, you know, movement, uh, Standing Rock, you know, all of these sort of colossal, the George Floyd rebellion, right? All of these sort of monumental historical moments in this country have always advanced, raised the bar for what it means to resist uh, or to engage in a struggle for social justice. And the Defend the Atlanta Forest movement is no exception to that, right? The sort of decentralized and autonomous ethos and, and tactics that the movement has defined as sort of the cutting edge now in this country for what it means to resist um, ecocidal projects or police terror projects. And we hope that the Block Cop City movement and the new relationships that are forged and the networks that are forged as a result of this can be an inspiration and a starting point for the rest of our lives in our collective struggle to resist the destruction of our home planet. Because if we don't scale up our ability to work with each other, we're toast. Where can people go to follow what's going on? What hashtag should they be watching? Uh, where can they go to get updates on the protests as this plays out? Yeah, totally. So, you know, the campaign's called Block Cop City. Um, we have a website, blockcopcity.org. Um, media contacts can hit us up, uh, media at blockcopcity.org. There's a contact form on the website um, for people who want to get in touch. Um, on that same website, there's a way to subscribe to the newsletter. Um, you could also, through that newsletter, you'll get information on how to join the Telegram channel. Um, that'll be used for correspondence leading up to it. Um, you know, uh, on the website, we'll have the schedule posted uh, with the location of the concert that's happening uh, Friday night at, you know, Atlanta Utility Works um, Veterans Day, Friday, November 11th, uh, November 10th. Um, there's going to be um, two in-person spokes council 
meetings. So, right. So each of these affinity groups that are being activated from across the city, state and country will bring send like one of their homies to this spokes council meeting where the, the action agreements and the specific plans will be sort of hashed out in real time collectively in a horizontal fashion. Right. And everybody will know exactly what they're getting into when they come to this thing on Monday. Right. So it's sort of we're doing this in the name of horizontality, in the name of accessibility, in the name of transparency, because we know that the stronger we're stronger the more informed we are together and the more ability we are to make sort of um, tactical and strategic decisions together. So we're hoping this can be a new way to sort of experiment with that. Uh, on Saturday, there's also a Black Love and Rage show um, that's going to be happening at a social center down there in Atlanta. And then, um, you know, Sunday, there's uh, direct action trainings, there's more spokes council meetings, and then the action itself will be Monday, um, November 13th. So, you know, get in contact with us, blockcopcity at gmail.com. Um, hit us up on the website. Look out for hashtag blockcopcity and follow the big movement Instagram accounts because they are they're regularly posting stuff from the Block Cop City Coalition. You know, if you want to get involved, if you want, if you have an org that you want to get involved um, or you've got a crew uh, anywhere across Turtle Island and you want to come here, you know, um, do it. Hit us up. Um I'll try to get back to you. Someone else will get back to you. We've got a pretty good team on, on comms right now. So, you know, we're, we're trying something new and we, we want you to try it with us. I'm exhausted. Last night I couldn't sleep, but when I did, I could hear bombs in my dreams. Nightmare situation. How could they be so evil? Making mortars out of children and innocent people. We expect the bombs not knowing where next. Huddle in the corner of my room, trying to protect my little brother. As the building shakes like it's possessed, but nothing stronger than the will of the oppressed. I bomb back with my lyrics and rhymes. Living the times, trying to break the Palestinian minds. What's hiding in the clouds hanging over my head? My dad risks is life outside to buy bread the fourth war in my 12th year at this stage i'm numb though i haven't feel scared there's nothing i can do in this case to stay safe i'm brave even though this house could be in my grave i want freedom for the population two million prisoners living in this location shouting at the wall but nothing is ever changing that's life under an occupation i want freedom for the population two million prisoners living in this location shouting at the wall but nothing is ever changing that's life under an occupation mothers mourn fighting with grief white sheets covered by this that lie on the streets buildings turn to ash but my mind is made of steel so it doesn't take much for me to heal won't lose the will to live or lose our minds my auntie lost her home so she lost her life but she is still alive but traumatized by the bombs that flew in and dropped that night my sister couldn't sleep try to stop her cries i said it was fireworks i was telling her lies where's the compassion this is heartless it's like they want us all living in darkness cutting off water and electricity for hours they're knocking towers but that's not knocking the power that i have in my pen when i'm writing i'm unstoppable the microphone is the only escape possible Cause that's the way that I can speak my mind I wonder how does the fighter pilot sleep at night Knowing he can turn the city upside down All of a sudden slaughtering families With the push of a button I want freedom for the population Two million prisoners living in this location Shouting at the wall but nothing is ever changing That's life under an occupation I want freedom for the population Two million prisoners living in this location Shouting at the wall but nothing is ever 
changing. That's life under an occupation. Hi, I'm Scott or Shuli, uh, and I was uh, one of the organizers of the Another Carolina Anarchist Book Fair. I also do other things like write and talk and organize in the anarchist world and teach. Hey, I'm Burst. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a co-host of the Final Star Radio um, out of so-called Asheville and also uh, helped coordinate the book fair. And yeah, that's most of what I do. I kind of want to do this because book fairs are happening all over the summer and into the fall uh, in various places. And I just wanted to pick your all's brain about book fairs. And it seems like you had a really good one. And there was a lot of amazing talks and a lot of people came out. And the space that it happened in Firestorm just opened up a new space in town. So I just kind of wanted to get into it for those possibly that have never been to one that are listening to this. So as someone who grew up in the Bay Area, um, I used to go to those starting in the 90s. Of, I Yeah. Anyway, it was like an interesting gathering point for a bunch of radical perspectives that I wouldn't have found elsewhere. And for me, when I started going as a part of Project Censored, actually uh, helping them table like it kind of morphed morphed over a few years. It was a, it was an entry point for me into radical ideas, radical milieu, uh, and finding out about groups and publishers that I could get more involved with over time. And then as years went by, and I started tabling with a different project or just going on my own, the book fair was an important time of the year when I could gather with people from around, mostly the West Coast, people I may not have seen, you know, in other things, but have started building relationships with as I came into my own as a, as a late teen, early 20 something into politics. So it became less about, um, yeah, less about the literature that was on the tables, a little bit more about the discussion, but mostly about making connections with folks. And so that's, that's kind of, I know that like the, that was the Bay area anarchist book fair when it was happening in San Francisco um, at, you know, some city owned park building, um, but I know it's morphed into a couple different things. There's been different book fairs since. Uh, but that that's kind of like, for me, the one connecting tissue between this model of space is not so much about the selling of wares, even though those are, you know, also potential entry points. Someone reads a book or picks up a zine or whatever, has a conversation. They like get drawn into thinking and acting and, and organizing with other folks. But it's more so about that latter part. And I think it creates a space that's inviting to the public in its best instance. It's it creates a space that's open to people that don't have those connections to sort of do that thinking and build those connections. And for the folks that have been involved again, uh, they get to strengthen those connections, hopefully. Yeah, I, th- I think like sort of in relation to what you were saying in terms of like how the book there has grown, um, you know, a friend, a comrade was talking uh, once about how the book fair is sort of like an anarchist ritual. You know, like we have it's become this, uh, you know, thing that you can rely on once a year in your region for as a place to gather and do <laughs> anarchist things, I guess, you know, like having conversations or I mean, it's become more than book book. Uh, selling or just sharing of, of written resources because there's most book fairs now seem to have a workshop component or talks, you know, um, which is what we did in, in what we do in, in Asheville too. Um, 
but yeah, just this kind of like yearly marking of a time. Um, but it's interesting to see that there's been like such a proliferation of book fairs. Like you were saying that, that, you know, this summer, it seems like there's one almost every week now uh, coming up. Um, so that like, it becomes this like replicable ritual that spreads into different regions. So like the anarchist book fair in Asheville took over the reins from one that was held in Carborough, but it's like the biggest regional probably uh, book fair, anarchist book fair. Um, there's one in Atlanta uh, that's called the radical book fair. That's not designated specifically as anarchist, but so I think as a specifically anarchist space, it's the biggest regional one. So like people, people look forward to this, right. And they like know that they're, coming there and they'll see people there so it becomes this kind of other way to like mark time and and have community and uh and then i think also just in terms of like having a space where where publishers put out all and like distros put out zines like all the stuff you can like see it so like you were saying like books might not be such a thing but walking through the tabling room and just seeing like all these like radical and anarchist um kind of texts you can like organize your thoughts about what's going on differently in a physical space yeah i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this kind of forum being still viable especially like post-covid in the situation we're at right now you know a lot of discussions we've been having is especially around like how do we bring new people in what makes you still excited about these events and what do you think makes them important still I think, well, like, as I was saying with the ritual, I think it serves a sort of need for people who are already, like, involved in some kind of anarchist, uh, you know, organizing movement work struggle. Um, it's like a space that's not organized around, you know, confrontation, um, or, <laughs> I mean, confrontations happen, but that's not the point of it. Um, and it's not like direct action. It doesn't, it takes a different kind of energy. So it's like a, a space maybe for like, you know, socializing too. Um, so it serves this particular need within the community. I do have, you know, wonder about it as an entry point. This is something that as organizers, we've thought about a lot. It's like how to bring people in and, and how can we like, yeah, uh, bring new people in because a lot of the stuff like book fairs can replicate some of the subcultural stuff that, uh, in anarchist milieu that like makes it hard for people to feel welcome, you know, like, um, and so different book fairs, I think, uh, tackle this in different ways. Like one of the things that we've done over the years is um, pair up with this group called Pansy Collective, which is a queer and trans kind of music, uh, regional southern uh, music collective that puts on shows and raises money for people. And that brings in a different uh, like element of, of people um, than just a book fair would. So like when we have a bunch of like queer trans punk and electronic shows and dance parties like i don't know there's a lot more like young people there's a lot more diversity than we'd had when we were just doing a book fair um in terms of like who's showing up so things like that i think help help um you know uh, attract different people but then i think also like you were saying you know there's been the you know with the george floyd uprising also covid and um all the uh, attendant like abandonment in the wake of covid has uh opened a lot of people's eyes to like, and, and climate, right. has like opened a lot of people's eyes to how, how horrible everything is. So I, I think like the word, and this is like something I talk about a lot, like the, why I attach myself to the word anarchist, even though it could be called different things, but that, that has a certain kind of like attraction to people. So an anarchist book fair, I think like for the people who are like searching for answers of like, what can I do? How can I work against this world that is stacked against us? 
um, you know, having these like publicized spaces where you can come in and like kind of casually engage, right. Without that much commitment, uh, I think is really, really good entry point. Yeah. I think that kind of also, um, I guess I was thinking sort of of a thing that um, Madibo Kadali had said in the past uh, in a conversation that I had on the pod on the final straw about the Atlanta Book Fair, I think last year, um, talking about how important it was on a recent like book tour that that he and Andrew Zondervold had done about using spaces that weren't just subcultural spaces like bars or bookstores or whatever, but actually um using uh physical infrastructure in the area like community centers or like we used um the the um library space attached to the West Asheville Library for some of the presentations and that potentially makes it a bit more welcoming if someone's a little worried to walk into the queer bookstore for whatever whatever hang-ups or whatever like things they got going on or into the bar space like having having events in that sort of space I think is kind of important um I think also I guess kind of to touch on the what do we get out of these sort of events I've been noticing over the last um actually I think since the first one of our book fairs uh we've been people have open space for grieving and for grief and for sharing loss and mourning together uh it was <clears throat> some local organizers um who do death care work uh, in the first book fair that had, um, done such a thing. And they just like created an altar space after hours and offsite from where we were at, uh, with the book fair events. And that I thought was really important. It wasn't again, like a direct action or anything like that, but it was, it allowed people to, to mourn those that they lost, those who are close to them and sort of like bring that community together around that. And that kind of, that continued through, um, a death care discussion and an altar and a grief circle at this year's book fair here. Um, I think that, anarchists learning to find ways to like deal communally as well as individually with loss, especially um, since the beginning of the COVID pandemic and how, how many people have been devastated through continuing ongoing healthcare problems or, um, you know, the loss of someone in their life. You know, I, I think it's an important, an important thing to give the opportunity for collective grieving in that manner. Um, and then related to that, we tried to be a bit, more thoughtful about our approach towards health and safety this year. Um, like when the COVID pandemic really started happening, I think, I think Montreal maybe was the first really big one. Although I know Victoria and BC had, uh, had a similar approach, but to do like an online event only in that instance, when it wasn't considered to be safe for people to share space, they recorded a bunch of online you know, presentations of what might have gone on in person so that people could attend those discussions. And then it was more accessible to people that couldn't travel to those. Um, and then also provided a book space online where people could check out vendors that were sort of sponsoring the event. Um, this year, because it's like, because in the past we had thought about housing for folks, uh, which brings up a whole nother question of like, okay, you're bringing people who may be strangers into your house. Do you have different senses of what is safe and what is like uh, a fair or like intelligent approach towards harm reduction around COVID and spreading that it just, it just really muddies the waters. And so this year we, um, we had a, thanks to pansy, we had a ton of can 95 masks available at all of the locations alongside of other harm reduction tools. Uh, and um, didn't force people to masks 
but we did this little experiment of like, hey, it worked a couple of years ago. How's it going to work now if we just apply a sort of like social pressure that like masks are available, people are masking? Do you want to be the crowd who's not? Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's been something that a lot of people have grappled with. Yeah, I, I mean, this is something I take seriously um, as someone who's um, chronically ill, immunocompromised. Um, and so, you know, like, I think, so we had to kind of, you have to meet this, like, desire that we're having at this point, especially, like, three, what is it, three plus years into the pandemic of, of community, because, like, I don't know. I reached a point where I was like so locked down that I felt so isolated and I, like, I just couldn't live that way anymore. And then I got COVID and finally, and I was like, oh God, I, I need to like, I need to change my life somehow. And it, it forced me into situations of taking more risk than I was doing before. Um, but I, I think as, as Bruce mentioned, like a lot of the situation in terms of like community care is, is about social pressure. Like I've, I've tried to think about this a lot instead of like, being upset when people aren't masking. I'm like, there's like so much pressure not to mask. And I even when I'm masking in a, in a place and I'm like one of the few uh, masking, I feel like I'm crazy or something, you know, because like no one else is taking it seriously. Like it, it just shifts your perception. So trying to create a culture where we're like mask is the norm um, and we take seriously like people's um like desire to access the space and feel feel safe and cared for from each other. Um, I think that really did um, work, although, you know, there were people who just didn't mask. Um, uh, and I think there's like, I think like it's so confusing because you like want to hope that like anarchists are going to be more committed to, to community care and, and like centering disability and stuff like that. But there's also the like edginess of just being like, I don't give a shit about anything and I'm not going to mask. I don't know. I, that's how I sort of read it. Um, but yeah, so like, I think, I think we also have to acknowledge when we're making these spaces in the pandemic that it, it can't be 100%, right? Like safe. There's no way to do that in person. And so like, just, it's, it's like, it's like that harm reduction approach. Um, so having masks available, we had tests available. We asked people to mask. We asked people to test. We asked people not to come if they're feeling sick. I mean, that all that's not you know, foolproof, but it's one way to, um, to try to approach it. And it's better than I've seen in other, like I, there's a conference going on right now, a writing conference where like 10 to 20% of the people have COVID and they're just spreading it. And the, the people there are like, we can't ask people to mask because the pandemic's over. Um, so <laughs> we, we did better than that, you know? Okay. <laughs> the pandemic's over. Yeah. I was thinking about, so we had a hiatus, you know, during, uh, the first three years of the pandemic where we didn't have the book fair. Um, and like, you know, Firestorm uh, took up some slack there in terms of having a lot of online uh, content. And, but this book fair was um, part of inaugurating like in-person stuff in Asheville again, in this way, like this kind of like focus of an anarchist uh, organizing in Asheville in person. Um, and, you know, like that grief circle that first mentioned and, and Cindy, Cindy, Milstein um, convened that and I've had conversations with them about about how there's this like when you have those spaces there's this like really intense need to be able to come and name that kind of grieving together and there was also at the book fair uh, a, a, I guess it wasn't really a workshop but like a space of, for <laughs> it was called Aging Anarchist Anonymous uh, that was like a kind of speed dating style way of putting people who 
identify themselves as the aging anarchists. I think they said like 35 plus is a kind of general figure um, to, to try to think about like aging into um, anarchist uh, organizing. And I think that is also kind of naming another need and desire. And I think the, that this has been heightened by COVID too, that, you know, um, in sort of my generation of organizing, a lot of uh, people like kind of get aged out in a way because there's not a lot of um, structures for caring for people as they get older, if they have like more health issues or if people start, you know, like doing childcare, like there's a lot of ways that um, we get kind of isolated from the communities that, that of organizing that, um, that sort of emphasize a specific way of engaging with the world. That's like pretty able body. Uh, that's like, you know, not, uh, dependent on care of other people or giving care to other people. Um, like you could just basically like drop everything and, and just, and, and, you know, go into the streets, um, at a moment's notice, but people's lives get more complicated a lot when you get older. Right. So I think that there's, and I think this kind of aging thing and the, the grief thing is a way of like, of trying to think about how we can create sustainable anarchist, uh, worlds, right. Where people can stay with, stay in them and not feel like, you know, if you have obligations of care, or if your body is like not uh, doing the things that it used to do or is causing issues for you that you can still be connected and, and, and treated as if you're like part of the community and, and that your input is worthwhile. I think that's something that we really have to start focusing on as we come back uh, into these in-person spaces with the pandemic ongoing. Um, and, and just because like with all the, the, with the pandemic, with the climate stuff, like we're, all going to be disabled, you know, in various ways uh, as we go forward. You know, one thing I wanted to ask for those that are listening, you know, what would you say goes into putting on a successful book fair? Because I feel like uh, yours was a great example of like really engaging, amazing content. For me, I think that a lot of our success rested on the fact that like pre-existing infrastructure, this is the fourth year that we've done this. We have um, our small collective was able to expand and include some more folks that we know, love, and trust from the community to help take on the tasks of um, coordinating spaces, of coordinating resources, of getting speakers. Um, and so, like, working off of the fact that, you know, this wasn't just like a one-off that we didn't have experience or, or contacts for. So that made it a lot easier to, to scale up in the ways that we did. Um and, you know, I mean, having having an anarchist bookstore in the area that has I mean, the like going back to talking about the covid policy, that's how Firestorm operates. Like they've they've continued being open through a lot of the pandemic with a mask policy, with masks at the front door and with like gentle reminders um, and sanitizer available uh, without without closing down. So they've been sort of modeling a lot of that stuff. Um, I'm very excited that today is the official grand opening of the space too. But, um, but I think that those are, those are the keys is sort of look at if you're just starting out, do a temperature check in your community, find people that, um, that you can work with that you share experience with maybe who, maybe who have the contacts already and just sort of like build out from there. Um, and I think that even though we still had some speed bumps, so to speak with it, like trying to, trying to think about, things that will deal with accessibility with the spaces like we were able to record a bunch of the content for later usage we didn't have any live streams of it but like 
we also had a um, a transport system set up between workshops between the two spaces so that people could catch rides with this SUV that we had um, that we had available to us, uh, which, you know, there was like a, what, like a couple of miles walk, I think, between the, you know, the main book fair venue and the two or three speaking engagement spaces, including the bookstore. Uh, which, I mean, you know, a lot of people can make that walk. Some people can't or can't comfortably, but also when you get one of those Southern thunderstorms in the middle of the afternoon between workshops that will drown anything that's out on the road, it's kind of helpful to have that as, you know, as an available resource for people to use. Um, and also like we tried to make it a holistic event that could have evening entertainment, um, for folks that did want to go to shows. Uh, and support radical artists um, who we're in community with. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. That's I'm I'm kind of gushing on it, but I think we did do a pretty good job. And those are some good things to keep in mind. Or you know, get in touch with us, or get in touch with other folks that have done um, book fairs, and and see what sort of notes they can give, because I'm sure they'd be, and we would be happy to help. Yeah, I have some thoughts too on this. Uh, well, one of the things that just like on what you just said, Bruce, the I think that our um, our transport like shuttle service was one of our better innovations this time around, which we hadn't done before. I think things had usually been a lot closer, but that increased access and like what I'd like to see in the future is stuff that like makes it more like we did some cool intergenerational stuff in terms of having like people who've been in, in the movement for a long time, like Lorenzo and Janina Irvin and um, Diane from the Jing collective uh, coming to like talk about, you know, like, movement work 50 years ago and and uh and then you know newer people but i'd like to see like uh, i'd like to see like an anarchist book fair that's like kid inclusive too um that that has like more youth involvement um because i think there's a lot of cool youth youth liberation groups going on now um but anyway in terms of like what makes this successful this is a, a successful book fair this is something i think about i've done a lot of like event uh organizing and and there's this feeling that I always, there's like a point where you're like, you do all this preparatory work to make the like structures work when it comes to the date. But there's something that happens when, it, when the event like takes place, which is really dependent on who's coming and who's, who's there. And that a lot of that feels unpredictable. Um, so I think a lot of the success that we have is up to the people who are coming to participate. And we, we like, you know, it's every year it's like different in terms of who, when we put out a call for vendors and, and tablers and, and people who want to offer talks and workshops, like we get a totally different group of people saying what they want to do, depending on what kind of projects are happening. Um, and, and I think like that is like a sort of magical unknown element, but to me, it's like really one of the, the things that anarchists do really well is forming this kind of like space where we can come together and like, innovate um like projects and talks and workshops in in the moment uh of the book fair like or an event like that or i don't know different kinds of events like this but so what i would what i would say in terms of like if someone wanted to organize this like you have to do that work to create a kind of structure that will hold space for the people who are coming to do the things that they need to do right so like the work of the organizers is to like get up to this one point where the thing can take place and then you have to like find a way to pull people in who want to offer things. So, you know, as we've done, this was our fourth, fourth book fair, I think. Um, every, 
time we've done it, it's gotten bigger because you start building like a kind of uh, knowledge base and um, and like reputation. So people want to come to it because they know that uh, the other people are going. Um, so I think I think part of the success is like also just like how you get the word out that you want to invite people to come and like make it possible for them to come and be part of it and offer what they have uh, at the event. And just to kick in there too, like, um, I, yeah, awesome points. Uh, one, one thing for folks that are going to be organizing, like with the speakers, we did, we don't have a very big budget, but we do do some fundraising. And so, um, you know, for the folks that we decided to invite, uh, we did help out a little bit with, um, not so much with travel costs, but like get them hotel rooms and, and stuff. And that, that makes it a bit more enticing when like movement folks, uh, like it doesn't necessarily work for university folks who are used to getting, um, payments for, you know, coming and doing presentations and that's how they make their living. But for movement folks, I think that makes it a little more enticing and a little bit easier, uh, to, yeah for them to have a comfortable stay. You mentioned the multi-generational aspect. I'm curious, you know, how that goes into it. Like, how do you create a space where both people can bring their kids and also that, you know, older folks are going to want to come? Yeah, I mean, that's something I'd, I don't think we've, like, fully figured out in terms of younger people. I mean, there's, like, you know, probably some older teens there. I didn't see a lot of people with young children and we didn't create i don't think we created a space that was like clearly welcoming to that um you know to to people who are uh parenting or caring for young children um so i think that you have to actually do a lot of work to to make people uh feel welcome um part of that would be to like create spaces that um that i my my way of approaching is to think of ways that like like younger people can be included rather than like separated off. Like, cause often at events you'll be like, there's a childcare space where you can like drop your kid off. Right. And then they're not at, they're not going to interrupt or bother the talk. And like, I've been at talks at book fairs where a kid just like walked up on stage, which I thought was kind of funny, but like someone gets pissed and starts yelling about, <laughs> about it. And then, uh, uh, being like, get that kid off the stage. And I'm like, this is like really weird to see in a, in a kind of anarchist space, you know? Um, in terms of older people, uh, well, you know, like we specifically invited people to come give talks that, uh, we thought would be, um, you know, really exciting to learn from and, and share, share wisdom with. Um, and so being in community in various ways with some older anarchists and movement workers is, is helpful. Um, I think like, you know, also you can think about that kind of programming that you have, um, and and also just making spaces comfortable. So like having seating for older people is really important. You know, like so some uh, older people like can't stand for long periods of time or, or need to like be comfortable. So just making sure that there's like spaces where people can have uh, their bodies feel feel comfortable is really important. Yeah, and then like the really simple stuff that that it is like analogous to ADA compliance. You know, making sure there's space for people to move comfortably. Um, making sure that there's, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, just that sort of stuff I think is important too. Cause it, it's really easy for, especially for those of us that come from a punk background to want to just cram as much stuff and as much people into a space as possible. And like taking a slower approach to be a little more gentle with that, I think is, uh, is good. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Shuli. Like we, this is not a thing that we've had 
a lot of success around as far as getting like making spaces for younger people, um, especially like spaces that can be. I mean, it's cool for younger people to like have space to play, but also it would be interesting to find ways to if younger folks wanted to like integrate better into like some of the conversations and not feel like they're sitting in a classroom necessarily. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, this is something, this is like obviously something that I'm like concerned with and thinking about a lot, especially like wh- I think within the week after the book fair, North Carolina um, effectively banned um, access for youth to trans affirming care, you know? So like there's a, the state is like attacking youth right all, all across the uh, so-called u.s and so like w- i think it's an opportunity for us to like um create welcoming spaces for <laughs> for kids whose like lives are literally under threat by the state by the by you know the um abandonment of the state by also the abandonment by like corporations who are just going to destroy the world right like um and, and we do see more and more young people getting radicalized through all of these events. So I did see some people from like local queer organizing groups that are, uh, you know, at the, at the book fair. And that was really cool. But I think it's just like, this is a, this is something we need to think about going forward is like making, inviting those people in and making them feel like they have something to contribute that is like considered, uh, worthwhile because, you know, we can sit and listen to the older people and, and, um, and, receive their wisdom and it's cool to see someone like lorenzo you know still uh still maintaining radical analysis right like he didn't like grow out of it because that's like one of the things that people like the sort of stereotypes of anarchism is that you like grow out of this unrealistic idea um or diane right like talking about the gene collective and then talking about like the the terrain now for people who are trying to help people get abortions and how, how much it's changed and how difficult it is and, and maintaining that radical perspective. Um, but I think like we also have to like make room for young people to like to contribute and, and that they have something of value to contribute without having that, that kind of layered history that we can like receive some insight and creativity from them not having already been like beaten down in all these ways that some of us older people are. Um, so just like finding ways to kind of, welcome them i think would be really important well here's a big one how do you deal with potential conflicts or quote-unquote drama you know maybe few people don't like each other maybe somebody doesn't want a project to table uh there's a disagreement on a workshop topic how do you navigate those tensions this time we didn't really have to um so much (laughs) let me restate that um (laughs) <laughs> the only table flipping that occurred was uh, a friendly one between distros so that someone could check off that box on the bingo sheet. Um, <laughs> so as, as far as like internal uh, conflict, luckily that that didn't seem to really, um, really come up. There were some pri- like there were some publishers that were there just wasn't space and. Uh, you know, they weren't invited to table, uh, who tend to be like more conflictual. Is that a fair way to say that? Um, <laughs> there was literally a very limited amount of space. We had more publishers than, you know, we had space for. 
And so we had to make the decisions of like, what do we feel like is going to add to this being a diverse and yet also enjoyable experience for us as organizers and for the other people that are going to be tabling around them. Um, and so, yeah, there's curation involved in, in helping to coordinate the event. Uh, but luckily, and we did have like folks that were on site for de-escalation at all the venues. Um, so if something had come up, that would have been something like there would have been people who were separately and specifically there to sort of like break up a fight or, or stop, stop a conflict. And, you know, if it came up to some degree or like move it outside, although that wasn't so much the focus of that crew that was more like focusing on external threats coming in. Um, uh, I know that with the, with the tabling setup also, there was a lot of thought that was put into putting um, distros and projects that were friendly with each other and next to each other. And that was not so much to avoid conflicts as more so in order to like foster support. So if like, you know, one project is next to another uh, and their buddies already, they might know the pricing on the other person's table and be able to answer questions about the books or whatever material. If the other person goes off for a bathroom break or just to watch a presentation or get some food or whatever, take a break. Um, and, or, and also like helping set up and break down, uh, just to sort of facilitate that thing. I mean, the first thing you got to know is that if you have AK press tabling next to PM press, you create a black hole that will suck <laughs> the whole tabling area into nothingness. Um, we don't do that. Really um, collapse underneath all those books. <laughs> yeah. There's like history of like book fairs being conflictual spaces with like, you know, people taking like matters into their own hands and in, in, in direct confrontation. Um, the Asheville Book Fair hasn't been one of those places. And I think there's like regional differences that factor into this in terms of like, you know, how big a nihilist presence you have or like, you know what I mean? Like, or like, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, the Insurrecto bros had more pull than they do now. Um, and, and our region is very, it's like very, uh, queer and, uh, I don't know, like the conflicts come in different ways. But I also think this year was different than previous years in terms of, like, we've, we've previously put a lot of thought and effort into, like, creating the spaces that people feel comfortable and engaging in. And so we, like, listen when people say, like, oh, there's this kind of person that wouldn't, would make, like, the space feel unsafe. And we've tried to honor people's requests around that, but we didn't really have a lot, like, that this year and and i started trying to think about this because you know other criticisms we've had have been around like cultural appropriation stuff which is you know comes up a lot at book fairs about like you know dread white people with dreadlocks or mohawks or or whatever and, and different book fairs have like really clear stated policies that they won't allow for that um and i was just wondering if like this year because i didn't see these kinds of conflicts coming up as much um if people are just like in a different place in terms of what is important to be like talking about and struggling about, right. Cause like there, there might be other ways that we're like connecting and dealing with things. Um, and like, we don't find all of those, like those smaller conflicts to be as important. Um, I'm not, you know, obviously still people get into fights and hurt, hurt each other. And, and there's like things that people do, um, whether they know or not that like are harmful in terms of like cultural, or whatever but um 
it just didn't seem to be the the atmosphere in our book fair this year. It seemed to be like people were really excited to be together. Um, and so there was just like this kind of overall more joyful vibe, I feel, than, uh, well, I'm not saying that it hasn't been like this before, but it, I, I just felt like there was less conflict. You know, one of the questions I think is very real question now is security. Uh, you know, in the past couple of years, there's been numerous book fairs that have been, I don't know if attacked is the right word, but definitely neo-Nazis had done like, you know, demonstrations outside and tried to gain entry to a couple of them. Uh, how do you all deal with security? So this year we had a, a safety team that was made up of, um, yeah, just uh, people from the community who know the town, uh, know the region and have various skills around um, medicking or conflict. Um, so, yeah, we just had people at every space in communication with each other during all the workshops. Um, and luckily there was not much in the way of actual conflict or sort of like also keeping an eye. Like we had a there was a general policy through all the spaces of not videotaping or taking pictures without consent. And so, you know, people like actually just community members oftentimes would like walk up and be like, hey, can you not videotape right now? Like, here's the concerns of why not. And most people were pretty respectful if they were approached in a like a reasonable manner and not just like flipped out on. Um, and there wasn't yeah, there wasn't much of uh, much of a situation of outside people coming in to cause fights or injure people that we were aware of. But it's definitely, you know, it's a definitely a concern that I think that people need to, you know, people who are doing this kind of organizing for public events need to keep in mind on Friday of our, like, so our book fair happened on the seventh anniversary or the sixth anniversary, excuse me, of the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. Um, we, like, the Friday night is the same night that the, the shooting at the party in Minneapolis happened. Um, like these are very real threats that whether it be uh, an organized right wing or reactionary presence or just like or just a disaffected individual who's um, at a breaking point can cause harm. And so, yeah, it's it's important to keep that sort of stuff in mind and keep people's safeties uh, in the forefront of our minds. But at the same time, it also I think with people that are doing security work, there can be um it's really easy for us to feel comfortable with the people that look and sound like us. Um, and which means that people that don't necessarily look and sound like us subculturally, ethnically, age wise, whatever, um, maybe people who are new to this event or just here for a specific part of it that they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't normally have access to, but Hey, it's happening in, in the town over from me. So I'm going to go see this workshop. Um, it's really easy for people that are looking at threat modeling to say that person does not fit and that person should be tailed or that person should be like asked to leave before that person does anything or, you know, without actually talking to the person about the activity of, you know, taking a picture of a table, you know, at a book fair where they may not know the subcultural or, you know, the, the reasoning why people would be asked not to do that. So I think that that's like that's a balance is not is. How does safety team not make the events feel threatening to people that are usually harassed by oftentimes like older white dudes with a sense of authority about them? Uh, how do you not 
uh, set up a situation where somebody who hasn't been to one of these before doesn't have the right patches on their shirt or whatever, um, you know, doesn't get tailed around a place like a shoplifter, um, which isn't to say, I mean, it's good. Yeah, <laughs> we had we had a situation with a Nazi biker walk into um, into one of the spaces and, and got escorted out and they had literal Nazi patches on them. But um, there was also, you know, anyway, so you see my point, I hope. And and in terms of like preparing for the event, we had anti-fascist researchers from around the region keeping an eye on tele- telegram chats and Facebook groups and like known actors as well as compiling information on people that were publicly known or, or are going to be soon publicly known thanks to local researchers um, to inform the people that are keeping an eye on the spaces as well as the um, organizers of who to maybe keep an eye out for who who might be a known actor who you know is is posting threats or could show up because they've got an ongoing um you know agenda another thing that people brought up over the years is you know expanding the audience for these type of events making it so it's not just a bunch of white people that are maybe like adjacent to the punk scene or something like that that are just coming out to this uh was that like part of your thought process or you know how do we address that it's definitely something that we think about um i mean look like Asheville is a particular space right like so we have to take into consideration this like Asheville has um decades uh long history of the city kind of you know driving out its black community in various ways through like infrastructure process through over policing through lack of opportunities so um, at this point in time, Asheville is like a 90% white city, I think. It's a city that's geared completely towards tourism and not for anyone who lives there. It's also actively in war against unhoused people. It's not a very diverse place, although people, people who like to tout it think of it as diverse because it's liberal, uh, quote unquote, uh, compared to like the more conservative areas, but, but they just mean like, you know, white people who like Tantra or whatever. Um, so like the space itself isn't, but we're in a region that has like a lot of kind of diversity. So I think like just kind of in terms of like connecting with different projects um, that are, you know, that bring in kind of like different perspectives or come from different communities um, is, is one of the ways that we can address this. But I, I think like, you know, we still are stuck in a, in a really predominantly white, uh, and white supremacist area. Um, I can think like, you know, like comparing our, our book fair to the Atlanta radical book fair, cause it's like our sort of neighboring closest one. Like that has a totally different, different kind of feel because of Atlanta's, you know, um, history of like black organizing, um, that's continues today. Um, and, uh, and like the, the like, ability to like hold it in a, in a kind of black space in a, in a library that's dedicated to archiving and history of African-American culture. Um, and, and like, yeah, we've thought about this in the past in terms of an actual, like what kind of spaces we could use that wouldn't be um, tied necessarily to these more kind of like subcultural, you know, youth consumer oriented spaces. Um, there's like community spaces in like we at one point we were we were going to use a community space in a, in in the one of the predominantly black neighborhoods but we wanted to 
make sure that we wouldn't then just be seen as like, you know, coming from outside doing something in someone else's neighborhood, you know? Um, so yeah, it's something that, again, this is like an ongoing thing that I think it can get better. And, um, the way that we really address it is by like the kind of, um, by making sure that our, our, you know, content is, is, uh, wide ranging and, and has like a lot of differences and that we like, find ways to invite and include people from different um, spaces. I think also like the venue in the, one of the venues in the past that we'd use is called the moth light. It was a, a bar and, and music space that closed down during pandemic because the owners wanted to do something else with their lives. Basically it's really like heavy loss, I think um, for the community and a lot of, a lot of benefit shows that happened there for various radical projects the space that's like the the project that's now using that space is called Different World, which is a BIPOC led queer um, artist and organizer space um, that I think is they seem to be really coming up, like coming into uh, a really awesome place. Uh, you know, now with a few years under their belt of organizing, they regularly feature um, book packaging parties for transmission prison books. The local like queer and trans prisoner book um, distribution project, as well as the Asheville prison books project. Like they're, they're involved in stuff that is anarchist adjacent already, which is great. Um, and I think that that was, that was a really cool opportunity for us. Like a, it, it's a great space. We've worked in that space before, but B also to be like working with the staff and the coordinators of that. And in the way that we could like support that space by having our event there. I think also just, yeah, that was a good point, you know, cause like, I think that they are working to sh- sort of like show that uh, Asheville isn't actually this like totally homogenous space that the city wants to create. Um, in, in, and they're promoting like the work and, and art and, uh, ideas of, of, um, of like, yeah, black and people of color. Um, but also, you know, that we had our sort of keynote was like, was, Lorenzo Combo Irvin, Janina Irvin, and William C. Anderson talking about like black anarchism and 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 fa- and fascism. I think that like just like that brought we. I mean, we had a whole bunch of people for that event. It was packed out like like I would say on the verge of too many people in the in the room uh, for that. And like um, I think that just like sent, focusing and centering on on that kind of perspective also like brings in a different kind of people, people who aren't necessarily anarchists, but are looking to the legacies of, of black organizing, you know. Um, and so uh, and that also just like maintains this kind of presence in the in the city itself. So I think that is another way to to um, approach it. We want to turn now and talk about this international anarchist gathering that happened in Switzerland. Uh, it's historic in the sense that this is where anarchists, after being kicked out of the international, held like a conference. It was like the like the anti-authoritarian international or something like that. Um, so it's kind of seen as sort of the, this birthplace of sorts of the movement. Uh, people have had various gatherings there in the past. I'm just saying there was about 5,000 folks. You know, it seems like it was really interesting and a good time and lots of stuff going on. Let's, let's talk about it. What was it like? 5,000 folks in one spot. Yeah. Um, it was, it was a lot. And I think that, I mean, it was a lot, but it was really good. And 
I keep coming back to how well coordinated it was. So I don't think they were planning for maybe, maybe they were planning for 3000 initially. And then when I was talking to folks uh, who were paying attention, like in Switzerland before the events happened, they were like, it's going to be 5000 people. I don't think they were expecting that. That's, that's the population of the city. So this event or the town, this, this event doubled or village even doubled the size of Saint Emile in the, the Jura Canton. Um, so it, yeah, it made, made a huge difference or I'm sorry, wait, actually just to correct myself. Yeah. The Canton is Bern, um, but Jura is the region. Uh, and Jura Federation was the, the, um, watchmakers union that, um, Bakunin and other anti-authoritarians were organizing with and who coordinated that first, um, international and, 1872. So this was the 150th anniversary of it. Um, and yeah, they've, as you said, they've had these a couple times in the past. There was one I know a decade ago, I think kind of, kind of building up towards this, but I think 5,000 people in one space, they did a, a really, not only 5,000 people in a space, but 5,000 people, even if it's like a polyglot culture there, like Switzerland has a number of languages that are recognized between German, French, uh, Italian, and then like the variant, like Swiss German, um, languages. And this event was multilingual. There was not translation for everything, but there was translation for a lot of things. And a lot of the workshops were happening in one language, or maybe people were like simultaneously translating for a couple. Um, that's a piece of infrastructure that I was really impressed with. The fact that they had to scale up the food and they had just a bunch of food collectives, uh, cooking like movement collectives come and produce the food. And I have, I am, I'm not a vegan. I have not been a vegan for a very long time. Uh, these folks made amazingly like tasty, colorful dishes of food. There was a surplus to some degree all the time. There was celiac safe food, uh, there was coffee available almost all the time for free. And it was all pay as you, as you can, like they were budgeting 20 um, Swiss francs or which is kind of like a Euro, which is kind of like a dollar at this point um, per person for food. But um, even with the increase up to 5,000 people, it's like the food was delicious. I have no complaints about that at all. They had, let me just, there was a write up that, um, that crime think did a collection of, memories from it that I think is really great. It, it's, you know, people saw some stuff that I didn't see that wrote it up. Um, but there was pulling from that. There were 412 workshop sessions over this five days. There were 48 concerts, 36 film screenings, 11 theater performances and seven exhibitions, as well as the book fair with over with about a hundred tables. So, um, yeah, camping spaces were available, even though there was a little bit of shifting around that, uh, because there were fears about people camping in the floodplain, which is pretty legitimate. And then they had not only just a general camping area as well as an indoor sleeping space. Um, there was also a like Flinta specific, um, camping area, which is basically like the German way of saying everyone but cis dudes. Um, but so that was, that was an opportunity for folks to, camp in places where they would feel more comfortable. Um, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. I could just kind of like list off a bunch of stuff, but 
it was it was pretty impressive. What were some of the things that people were talking about? Like, I mean, just kind of like bumping into folks. I mean, you see everything from like C and T tables to I'm sure lots of distros. I mean, you're there representing a podcast. I'm just kind of curious, you know, like walking around, like what was it like? What was it like talking to folks from different countries? Yeah, and it did kind of have it did have um, a very like Eurocentric presence. Uh, to be honest, it was meant to be an international gathering and considering the history of it and, you know, the majority of the unions participating historically were based in, uh, Europe and the federations and what have you. And just because of the cost of travel, um, you know, even if I think some folks were fundraising to, to try to go there from other places that were, you know, so that they could participate in the, the conversation, it was mostly, there were some Latin American folks that I knew that were there from Chile, which is pretty cool. And there were from some folks speaking uh, during presentations about the situation in Iran and um, anarchist organizing in Sudan. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty overall, like pretty Eurocentric. Um, yeah, there were tabling. There was a large like Apoist tabling area, like um, supporters of, democratic confederalism in um kurdistan basically and like rojava and bakur and like other other regions where kurds live um and there were some presentations related to that as well uh the conversations were there was a lot of discussion there were a lot of the things that you would expect to find at um any sort of like anarchist gathering mostly what i was doing was was trying to catch up with people i hadn't seen in a few years or, or people that I've worked with um, for my radio show and project or um, hanging around to some degree with the folks from the a radio network um, that we contribute to the bad news every month with uh, as far as like conflicts go, there was a lot of conflict around the war in Ukraine and people's approach to it being in, you know, the uh, as an area that is mostly, um, represented in the NATO alliance um, can bring some like, yeah, it brings some conflicting views that I think like a lot of listeners in the so-called U S also have around the idea of, uh, ha- you know, the idea of engaging with a state military. So, so basically here, here's what it is, is uh, there were conflicts about how, what was the appropriate anarchist response for people in Ukraine and subsequently like related people in Russia or people in Belarus, uh, in relating to the war between Russia and the Ukraine and some people, um, taking a position that, you know, any sort of participation in a state military, even if you're fighting back an invasion of an area where you're at, um, because it will decrease the amount of, um, sexual assaults, the amount of killings, the amount of like destruction of your home, uh, that that's that, that like the appropriate response would be like just do sabotage or, um, to, to leave for somewhere else. And other people saying, well, as muddy as this is or as difficult as this is, we're going to support people that are participating in the armed forces who are fighting like the territorial defense of Ukraine fighting back the, the, Russian invasion of the territory. Uh, that was like, there was a good amount of conflict around that. And there had been some conflict 
uh, at the prior Balkan Anarchist Book Fair that had happened a couple of weeks before in Ljubljana, Slovenia, which I was not present for. But um, so, f- for instance, there was a large discussion that had translation, like simultaneous translation into, I think, six languages um, in this auditorium with people presenting on the stage from Solidarity Collectives from Ukraine, uh, from Belarus ADC, from a few other projects, uh, all of the perspective of that people need to be supported in resisting the Russian invasion. Um, and it was interrupted multiple times by uh, people from various anarchist federations or just individual actors who had interrupted them at prior events because they didn't want the discussion to happen. They thought the the only anarchist answer is um, to abstain or to smash the state. And if it's it's either one or the other. And so, yeah, that was that was the sort of for me, that was like the big visible um, sort of hanging cloud, which it's you know, it's rough. It's difficult. I don't think there is a perfect answer for it. I am personally in support of people defending themselves if they're being attacked. And sometimes we have to participate in structures that we don't like in order to save our lives. But um, but yeah, there will be I'll share a recording of the audio from that presentation pretty soon with some of the perspectives of the people that were on on the panel. Um, another conflict that happened that was sort of alluded to in some of the um, crime Think article was a French publisher um, or anarchist group had a book on their table that was written by someone who supports Eric Zemmour. I think I pronounced his name ish. Right. But a far right candidate who was um, in the last elections, like did a little bit worse than Le Pen, but uh, which is a very, it's an anti is an Islamophobic tract basically um, talking about uh, religious practices among Muslims living in France from this sort of uh, French chauvinist perspective, even if it calls itself atheist or whatever, that people attempted to take off of the table at one point, and then that didn't work. And then there was a conflict at the table after I left where apparently some people or someone got beaten with uh, baseball bats because they were uh, attempting to remove and so there was a large processing that happened afterwards, as I understand, where people were talking about their feelings and what they experienced. And that group was told to leave. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, there's there's conflicts in, in spaces where people have uh, passionate feelings about topics and they disagree with each other. And hopefully being in space can also give the opportunity for uh, ways to move forward, like through those issues. Well, anything else you want to say about that event? Uh, it, I mean, like beyond the conflicts i mean which arises in the event um i mean it just sounds pretty awesome i mean people camped uh people ate together uh there's some report backs on crime think some other groups have written reports it just sounds interesting i mean i would love to see a huge gathering like that of five thousand folks i think there's two things going on with that well th- well three maybe one is the self-selecting element i was talking to people that i already knew um, mostly, I mean, I did talk to some folks that I hadn't met, but a lot of it was about strengthening existing organizing ties that I've got and seeing friends. Um, there's also kind of a, um, you know, well, the United States holds a disproportionate amount of cultural creation. And because of the huge arms industry and the very active like CIA and military and all this stuff and economic pressure, the U.S., uh, what happens in the U.S. and perspectives from the U.S., even if not anarchist ones end up getting 
amplified so much that they take up a lot of space. Um, but I, I find generally that um, anarchists in different parts of the world are pretty aware of, of stuff that's going on in the U.S. And then uh, third, there is there is to some degree like a reactive like disinterest and stuff that's going on in the U.S. because we're the um, seat of the great American Satan. So uh, <laughs> people kind of are like, yeah, you take up too much space. Go away. Um, I, you know, I say that kind of kind of jesting, but like, uh, yeah, it was it was really awesome to be able to be in a space and just speak with people, you know, meet people at their tables and talk about um, talk about the movements and the organizing, the coordinating that they're doing. Like I there was a um, a trans table that had I noticed like some um, publications from Unterelli Press, which is like a U.S. based trans and queer um, anti-prison insurrectional publishing house that's based out of the Midwest. So I got to start a conversation because I was looking for some materials for um, a couple of friends who speak French uh, that they, they couldn't make it to the book fair, but, or to the, to the Saint-Emier. Um, and so I wanted to bring some material back or like talking to publishers from France about like, what, what do you have that talks about like immigrant experiences or about, uh, transness or about the black experience in France and dealing with racism, um, or talking to folks from, uh, Denmark who were involved in coordinating a recent, um, uh, no border gathering, uh, I mean, I heard perspectives like I got to have conversations with folks that had fought in Ukraine, um, like young people that had joined territorial defense and been a part of the um, like the anarchist and anti-authoritarian units when they existed uh, around like around their experiences, but also around um, their losses. Like uh, there was an event that was grieving for people that had died there including three anarchists um finbar harris and dimitri uh and i had interviewed dimitri under a different name for the radio show at one point but he's the one that it turned out had been also a part of the um anarcho-communist combat organization boac that does uh sabotage behind the lines in russia against the war effort and against the putin state um so yeah there was i mean i guess that's like Definitely an experience I took from there was being able to share space with folks that are dealing with the failed uprising against Lukashenko in Belarus or um, who are living in the the war hellscape of um, of Ukraine or dealing with the further like squashing of dissent and, and centralization of power and war machine that's going on in Russia. And it really felt like it resonated to some degree with me. I mean, on a different level, but like with the u.s during the especially the early war war and terror years you know this frustration of like how do we stop this thing that a lot of the population wants to happen and we know is just gonna make the world a lot worse um i will say that of those presentations and discussions that happened there's a large amount of them so people from the a radio network that again i mentioned we affiliate with um as well as other anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio projects did a live radio broadcast throughout the weekend called Radio Ria, which is the French acronym for the, the event. Um, and audios in French, Italian, German, Spanish, and English are available. Um, I can give you the link 
um, for the show notes for that. But you can listen to the radio broadcast that was being made by by those folks, either, um, you know, interviews that they were doing in their quote unquote studio space or stuff that had been recorded, like anarchist choirs singing or some discussions from people uh, about the organizing that they're doing wherever they're at or about DIY abortions or um, what have you. So you get kind of like a sense of the international feel of it um, and the possibilities that are there of, um, you know, in a good way, I guess, cross-contamination between movements. Uh, and then also beyond that, the um, A Radio Network did uh, record and other people recorded audio of the presentations and some video from some of the presentations that should be up hopefully soon on anarchy2023.org, which is the website um, for the event where you can see the workshops that were slated to happen, um, information about accessibility in multiple languages. Um, it's, it's really impressive and the kind of like open format that they had for, they like had this upvote system on this website where if you wanted to, if you wanted to see a workshop or if you wanted to present a workshop, you could just like put it in there as a proposal. And then based on how many upvotes it got, how much traction it got, um, it would get a spot. Um, if it got more votes and people were interested, then it would get a spot. It might be that it was a proposal that no one was actually promising to facilitate, in which case you may just have a like open discussion with a bunch of people that are all interested in the same thing um, and take what you can from that, maybe make some friends and, and move forward with these contacts and these experiences. But it was overall, it was a, it was a really amazing experience. Well, we've been talking now for a while about book fairs and this amazing event. I'm curious now just to kind of bring it back to all of us, like, thinking about this stuff like what does this make you think in terms of just kind of like broad public events yeah i agree we need we need to have big open spaces for people to come together this is something i I go on about like i think it's important to have spaces um that are low commitment and uh and like kind of you can come and go. It's not like going to a meeting. You're not signing up to do a bunch of work, but you can like find ways to connect with people and go in and out as you choose. Like that's super important because we, we we're stuck in this kind of like capitalist industrious idea that we constantly have to be doing something productive or, uh, you know, like even from a revolutionary perspective, we, we like hit ourselves with this kind of like work ethic. Um, and, I think the other thing that I, I would like to see is like us just being like really honest um, with each other and ourselves about what we want in these events so that we can make them serve our needs more clearly. Right. Like because we already have this the sort of re- repetitive structure of book fairs happening every year in different regions that sort of exists. So like we can tweak them as we need. Right. So like, you know, if it is to fulfill a space of like grieving together or like like going back to, you know, quoting my friend Vicky about like the ritual of the book fair, like how can we have this serve our like sort of spiritual needs or whatever, like um, finding like love and connection. Like I, I think just like kind of reflecting on on how these these structures can serve us in the here and now um, and kind of 
give us a form of sustenance, I think would help us kind of fine tune them and, or just even make them more expansive. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.